The Daily Rios, episode 424, a look at phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Wakanda forever! What do you stand for? Are you an activist? What are your city plans for? Are you an accident? Are you just in the way? Your native tongue contradicting what your body language say? Are you a king? Are you joking? Are you a king? Are you posing? Are you a king? Are you smoking bull rice to keep you open? Because a king don't cry, king don't die, king don't like king. If our king get by king, don't fall kingdom come when I come, you know why. King, 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 I am T'Challa. It's the final episode, taking a look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe lead-up to Avengers Infinity War. Hey all, this is your host, Peter. Phase 3. We have Captain America Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, and Black Panther. Now, as before, these are not reviews. I'm not doing a synopsis of each movie. I'm assuming that you've seen them, and what I'm going to do is detail standout little bits of information that might be of use leading into Avengers 3. Now, I enjoy making these connections, whether they are intentional or not, and Phase 3 certainly continues that trend. Although this is the phase I'm least familiar with, probably because I've had less opportunity to see these movies on multiple viewings, right? And two of them, Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther, this is the first time I'm seeing these movies. So that's right, I missed Black Panther in the movie theaters, and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> um, this is also the phase that mixes things up a bit, I feel, in terms of how the movies are put together, or in how they sometimes tangent off into new areas of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, most notably, I think of like Doctor Strange introducing magic in a major way, and then the team up with Sony to make Spider-Man. Uh, you know, that's a, a little departure, but not really. And then you have the offbeat nature of Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok, and the new mega popular corner of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe with Wakanda, and Black Panther and his supporting cast. A new hero for a people that certainly deserve one. So we start with Civil War, Captain America Civil War, and I just have bullet points here. These are not fleshed out. So let's see what kind of um, what kind of thoughts they bring out. So 1991 is where the movie picks up. Uh, we have Hydra. We have the book that controls the Winter Soldier. Now, uh, the character of Bucky was tested on in First Avenger, Captain America First Avenger. Uh, that's where Steve found him when all the people were um, being held as prisoners. Um, he found Bucky strapped to a table, so that was kind of like the beginning of possibly his um, transformation into the Winter Soldier, so that's kind of cool. Uh, the Winter Soldier is going after um, someone in a car, and we'll find out later that those are the Starks, Howard Star Stark and Maria Stark. Then the movie jumps to the present where the new Avengers of Captain America, Scarlet Witch, Black Widow, Falcon, um, and of course, uh, I think War Machine was included in that, but he's not here right now. They're going after Crossbones, 
And it made me think, oh, right, we set up Crossbones in the last movie, but then he's quickly done away with, uh, you know, within the first 10 minutes of the next movie. And that's something that actually happens a few more times. So I'll point that out when we get there. Now, this is the movie that is affectionately called Avengers 2.5, because not only do we have the new Avengers, but we have Tony Stark as well, trying to clear traumatic memories um, uh, or, or showcasing a device that could clear traumatic memories. And we see a young Tony Stark with some anti-aging special effects by, by the Marvel Universe. Uh, he's at MIT with a September Foundation grant that will lead into uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, I believe. Pepper is gone. Her story is written, you know, between the movies, which is kind of weird. Um... With the accident that happens while they're chasing uh, crossbones, uh, Scarlet Witch makes the makes him go boom. A bunch of Wakandans are killed, and that's how we get the uh, introduction of Wakanda and the Black Panther and um, the Sokovia Accords. Uh, which is introduced to the New Avengers by Secretary of State Thunderbolt Ross, which is uh, a nice little connection back to Incredible Hulk. And I think the uh, directors or writers, they even said, we wanted to include him because it felt like the Incredible Hulk movie was kind of like the bastard child of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Nobody was talking about it. It wasn't really made reference. So this was a way to connect back to that movie. So we have the Sokovia Accords, the Avengers will operate under a United United Nations panel, and we get the division between the team early on between Captain America and Iron Man. Now the whole plot is boiled down to um, Zemo, who was a um, citizen of Sokovia and lost his family, and the whole reason he has information on any of this stuff, on Winter Soldier, on the Avengers team, is because of what Black Widow did at the end of Captain America Winter Soldier, where she released info out into the world, and, you know, that info was easily accessible, so I thought that was a nice nice little callback. We have the vision bringing up um, the concept of causality, where conflict breeds catastrophe, and that is something that uh, is certainly always looked on when it comes to superheroes and superhero comics. Tony says we need to be put in check. He's comparing it to what happens. Uh, he's comparing it to what happened when his weapons were being used by others. And Steve says, well, that was your choice to uh, cancel the arms manufacturing side of your company. And this is different. We don't have a choice if we decide to side up with uh, the United Nations. And like the Civil War book, I'm not really sure... I'm not really sure who's right or wrong um, in in the sense that I feel like either one of these characters could have flip-flopped to either side. Like I feel where, you know, the way Tony made fun of the government in Iron Man 2 and where he was at the end of Iron Man 3, this was quite a big jump. And I know we get that at the beginning of Civil War and with Age of Ultron, you know, he he's constantly always... I don't know. His his goalpost keeps moving. So it's a little expedient. It's 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 a way to get the chess pieces where they need to be. So whatever. Do they really make sense? I don't know. It makes sense for this particular plot. It is a Captain America movie, so you have to give him um the side of the quote unquote right. So 
at Peggy's funeral, we get uh, Sharon Carter saying the words or the phrase of um, compromise where you can. When you can't, don't. If the whole world is telling you to move, you say no, you move. Which was a Captain America phrase from the Ultimates, I think, or no, maybe from his regular book. I'm not sure. But we get the the personification of this later when one of the Dora Milaje confronts uh, Black Widow with Black Panther looking on and, and she says, move. And I thought, oh, look, there's a, a simple version of move or be moved. I did write here, how did the signing up for the Accords differ from when Steve signed up for the Army? Isn't it necessary? Isn't it somewhat the same thing? Where Captain America was under the Army, or he was under SSA, or he was under S.H.I.E.L.D., although he did have issue with being their lackey, so I can kind of see his progression. Um, by the end of this movie, we'll see that the whole thing was about vengeance or, or revenge, and there's an early phrase, uh, early dialogue with Black Panther where he says, death is not the end. You go to the green veil where you can run forever. He's talking about his father. And then he says, I am not my father. I'll kill him myself. And he's talking about Bucky, who is being accused of blowing up um, the United Nations meeting, which killed T'Chaka, uh, T'Challa's father. There are some really great action sequences in this movie. I think more so than Winter Soldier. I do like the whole staircase sequence, the car chase sequence, the airport sequence. They're not the most glorified uh, settings, and the colors can come across quite drab in a lot of these movies, but the execution is pretty damn good, and I uh, certainly expect the same thing with um, Infinity War. I'm a little confused when Vision said that the Mind Gem gave abilities to Wanda. I thought they, well, no, I guess they were called Enhanced, so maybe that's, maybe they were enhanced by the Mind Gem, and that was their way from call, uh, around calling them mutants, right? They can't call them mutants. We get the introduction of Everett Ross. I like the sequence where to, uh, Cap is just about ready to sign and then Tony has to open his big mouth and say that Wanda is being held at their new headquarters. And Steve feels that it's not her just being there on her own. It feels like a form of internment. And that's when he flips and decides he's not going to sign. Widow says an interesting line to Bucky and says, you could at least recognize me. So there's some connection there. And then the movie really blows up. And becomes less of a Captain America movie when everybody goes to get reinforcements for each side. We have uh, um, Widow going after Black Panther, Tony going after Peter Parker, and the introduction of Spider-Man, and Falcon saying that uh, he knows a guy, which means Ant-Man, and suddenly the Marvel Cinematic Universe has blown up once again uh, pretty quickly after Avengers Age of Ultron. We only had Ant-Man in between those two movies, so... To kick off Phase 3 with this um, gave the entire Phase 3 a sense of danger um, and this feeling that everybody is out there for themselves and uh, somehow they got to find a way back again. And then obviously uh, Hawkeye comes back into the mix as well by this point in the movie. And I feel that, that um, idea of putting the chess pieces where they need to be is also evident when they bring in Ant-Man because Steve says 
you'll be a wanted man if you do this. And Scott says, eh, what else is new? And I feel like that's not where he was at the end of Ant-Man. And, uh, you know, this is just the way for the creators to move the players where they need to be um, for this movie. And they can reestablish where they need to be for their solo movie uh, quite easily, just with a very, you know, simple little bit of dialogue. I've been talking about this for the entire um, trilogy of podcasts about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The whole idea that Tony gets to fall from the sky in his armor and nothing happens to him other than maybe just a few, you know, maybe one or two broken bones. And here we have Rhodey falling in a deadfall and he gets majorly hurt. So, you know, ramp up that drama, I guess. Um, Steve says to Bucky, what you did wasn't you. You didn't have a choice. Bucky says, I know, but I did it. And I feel like that's the heart of all of this. Uh, and I'll talk more about it at the end of this uh, segment on Civil War. I did like the dual nature of um, two different people losing family and how they react. We have the Alfre Woodard character uh, who lost her son talking to Tony at the beginning of the movie. And we have Zemo who lost his family and the way he wants to handle uh, the whole situation. So that was a nice little counterpart there. We also have the juxtaposition of the way that Zemo goes about ven with uh, his vengeance and also Black Panther because Black Panther wants to kill Zemo for killing his father but then realizes, no, he can't let this consume him. So uh, that was a nice little duality there. The line Tony says... When Steve says about Bucky, he's my friend, and Tony says, so was I. Mm, I don't buy that. Uh, I, I didn't buy it when I first saw it, and even watching all these movies back to back to back, uh, I don't buy it either. Unless it's Tony thinking that he's Cap's friend in his weird sort of way, but Steve knowing, mm, you know, we're colleagues, we're, we're co-workers, we're not necessarily friends. So maybe that's a way around that. The whole fight between Steve and Tony being based around the fact that Bucky killed the Starks is interesting, but I, I, I feel like Steve should have, uh, if he just would have brought Bucky in to begin with, um, especially once it was found out and figured out that uh, it wasn't him that caused the explosion. And I know they're going after Zemo and the other, what they assume to be other super soldiers, uh, and they feel like he's going to possibly create more super soldiers, even though that's not what he does. I feel like somewhere along the way, I don't know, maybe it makes sense because Tony is being reactionary, but I still feel, I, I don't totally agree with Steve that... Uh, Bucky is totally off the hook. Um, even if he was coerced and brainwashed, you know, you still got you got to prove it. You got to prove it in court. So um, I don't know. I, you know, who I don't know legalese. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Just something didn't sit right with me about that either. Um, I'm I'm on sort of both of their sides. I can see where Tony would be pissed off, and they got to do it because the whole movie's called Civil War, and you got to break up the two of them. You know, we assume they're going to get back together again uh, on the same level playing field by Infinity War or after. Um, but Steve's allegiance to Bucky 
is a little too much for me um, at this point. And there are a bunch of notes that I'm skipping around on. Um, one of my biggest takeaways is what's the aftermath? What's the aftermath of this movie in terms of the Avengers? You know, at this point, I hadn't seen Black Panther. So is that where we pick up? I, I assume in, in Infinity War we're going to pick up, maybe after. Um, there's a lot of time between these movies. So there's a lot of time for Cap and Widow and everybody that Cap breaks out of the raft to be in the background. Um, and you know, now that I've watched all these movies in phase three and you go, huh, and they're nowhere to be found. It's, it's kind of interesting. But then of course, Tony gets the letter from Cap and he says, if you need me, I'll be there. And you know, yes, we know. Uh, and then we get the after credit scene in Wakanda. And then we also get the after credit scene with Spider-Man. And I feel like civil war is a response to, um, everything that happened in, phase two, you know, everything sort of escalated to create civil war at the beginning of phase three. So I thought that was a nice touch. All right, then we get to Dr. Strange and we now have magic, um, but it's magic, but magic used as weaponry and magic used as defensive and, and offensive, I guess, um, strategies not, nece not necessarily quite the same way in the comics, especially all that Inception stuff. But, um, you know, Doctor Strange himself has the that whip thing that he uses a lot. And then there are the shields that they make. And it's kind of all the same color. And I would have liked to seen more. I will say, though, uh, this is the second viewing of Doctor Strange. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more this time around than I did the first time. Not necessarily the biggest fan of Benedict Cumberbatch as a choice for Doctor Strange. I feel like there could have been a more interesting choice, um, but he certainly makes it work. Um, there are parts of the movie that I like and there are parts of the movies, part of this movie that's kind of like, okay. Um, early on, Palmer says, Stephen, everything is about you. And I feel like they're making the character like Tony Stark, with a different swagger. Uh, he's intelligent, but in a different way than Tony. His outlook is certainly different in terms of um, the world around him, certainly after the accident. So it's very interesting to see these two together, and it'll be interesting to see how they bounce off of each other in Infinity War. Now, there was a little bit of nugget here of information where they uh, he's driving along before the accident, and someone says to him, hey... We have a colonel in the, in the army who could use some, you know, spine work. And they say, they don't say Rhodey's name. You have to assume it's Rhodey. But they say he's 35. And I thought, 35? That seems awfully young um, for these characters. Um, if we're going in real time from 2008 to whenever Doctor Strange came out. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All right. Same thing as Iron Man 1. We get the accident right at the beginning which is a certainly a Marvel trope, which, which I like. You know, all these Marvel characters have faults and have things that happen to them, uh, except this is certainly of Steven's own making. This is his fault. I feel like he should have died in the particular car accident that they had for the movie because it was quite violent. And I don't know how he just walked out of there with just his hands and a few bruises um, broken. I feel like, wow, that he should have he died. 
and I guess the same thing. It's the same thing with Tony. His accident is really because of his weapon, so it's on him as well. All right, so then I noticed how the casting of Baron uh, Mordo, um, all of these characters in the Marvel Universe, for some reason, have sidekicks who are black. So we have Tony Stark and Rhodey, Captain America and Falcon, and now we have Stephen Strange and Baron Mordo. And I don't know if that's a plus. I don't know if that's uh, the unfortunate aspect of the way comics were made. Um, and it was something that was becoming quite evident. Um, I feel like when that happens, it shows how representation is so needed. Not just as sidekicks and as partners, but in the main roles. And again, you know, if you're wondering why Black Panther was such a success, it's because people were seeing a movie and a superhero movie that didn't just put these characters and these actors on the sidelines and as sidekicks and as, you know, villains. So, uh, yeah, I know I noticed that as I was watching this movie this time, uh, we have the comment here from the ancient one. We are only one of many universes, the vast multiverse Maybe even the quantum realm, right, from Ant-Man. I know there was a lot of connections between those two movies. There was a point midway through this movie where I said, I have no idea who directed this movie because, you know what, in the long run, it never matters. Except for the big ones, except for the uh, Super Bowl chapters of this serial, you know, Avengers and... Uh, um, Captain America, Civil War, I mean, these lesser movies, these little one-off solo movies, boy, it really doesn't matter who directs them at this point anymore. Um, she also says, think of magic as a program, a source code, code that shapes reality. We harness energy drawn from other dimensions of the multiverse to make magic. And it made me wonder, will the multiverse factor into Infinity War with other realities, uh, either with Infinity War or the movie after, now that we sort of set it up with Doctor Strange, is there a way, especially with the time gem, to kind of mix the two together and, you know, do whatever it is they need to do uh, when they're battling Thanos? It's never fully explained why Stephen Strange was so uh, connected to the mystic arts, why it sort of latched onto him so easily. Um, but he takes to it fairly quickly and, uh, certainly with the cape or the, uh, cloak of levitation, that's another example of the way people around Stephen see him and the way that he's able to come to the mystic arts, um, through his own ego and through his own study. Um, this was another point where I stopped and thought, wow, this movie, the structure of this movie is Green Lantern, is the structure of Green Lantern, where you get this outcast, basically, who comes into something that has been going on for, you know, thousands of years, and, and they are suddenly the best at it, or at least they are, you know, incredibly adept. And then the sidekick or the person that is in charge of their training or introducing them to this concept, um, you know, works with them, but eventually switches over by the end. So you can look at Baron Mordo and you can look at Sinestro being the same. Uh, we also get this idea of this sort of nebulous 
otherworldly being that could cause harm. So we have Dormammu in this movie, and certainly Parallax was sort of the same way. Uh, this whole idea of conjuring power, right? The way that Doctor Strange conjures his power um, and the way he has to come to the power is similar to the way that Hal Jordan has to do it in the Green Lantern movie. So not talking quality, I'm just talking structure. There are a lot of similarities between the two in terms of... Um, so so this movie is a little different than some of the other Marvel mood movies. Well, maybe not, but how a lot of the Marvel movies, when they end, they always end with the hero battling their counter counterpart. So you had Iron Man and the Iron Monger. You had Captain America and Red Skull. Uh, you had the Hulk and the Abomination, Thor and Loki. And in this one, we have Doctor Strange and whatever the villain's name is, because I don't even remember. But off to the side, you have you have this Mordo character who's going to go bad. And I has that happened in other movies, Marvel movies, where the sidekick goes bad? Not necessarily. War Machine doesn't really go bad. You know, Bucky goes bad, but that's a that's a different situation. Um, so I feel like that's why the structure to Green Lantern is very prominent here. Especially when you think about at the end where he's battling Dormammu, or when he's even battling the the main villain, the 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 lackey. Uh, I feel like Strange should not be a match for him because he's not all that well versed, um, and yet he can hold his own. A couple other comments here. Time is the true enemy. Time kills everything. We are tiny momentary specks in an indifferent universe. We learn that there are sanctuaries in uh, New York, London, and Hong Kong because you got to get those movie, you know, those special places where this movie's going to make a lot of money, I guess. Um, Doctor Strange totally pulls a Superman 1 on Hong Kong by re by zapping time back and restoring it. I don't know why anybody doesn't look at that and go, wait, that, you know, that's not right, you know, but I get it. He has the time gem. We're, we got we to gotta introduce the audience to the time gem, and this is the way to do it. And they talk about how you can't violate the natural law because there will be consequences. The bill comes due. There will be a reckoning. A, a reckoning. So we'll see if that takes any place later. And then we have the credit scenes uh, with Thor and Loki coming to New York, looking for Odin, which is a spinoff into Thor Ragnarok. And then you have Bar Baron Mordo uh, killing uh, one of the other quote-unquote uh, sorcerers um, from earlier in the movie, and he says there are too many sorcerers. So he's clearly on the dark path. Okay, now we hit a trio of movies that for me are complete dips in... Not quality, but in mostly how they address um, humor or the tone. I think it's the tone of these next three movies that doesn't sit well with me. And it does make me a little nervous for Avengers Infinity War and the other movies to come in Phase 3 and Phase 4. We've kind of moved away from quippy Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr., Joss Whedon, Whedon kind of humor which, you know, sometimes I'm, I like and sometimes I'm not fond of. And we've gone into this a little pretentious, a little bit martyrdom, a little bit bougie, um, 
I'm not sure if that's right. Um, I feel like it's emulating the style of such things like Love on Netflix, which is a Judd Apatow series, if you know what that is, or Silicon Valley on HBO, or How I Met Your Mother, or or Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show, which, you know, that kind of epitomizes this kind of humor that I'm not necessarily a fan of. It's It's humor that attempts to show off that they are with us, that they are on our side, that they are woke, that they um, they get what we're seeing in these movies and what we want, you know? We want more representation. We want more female characters. We want more humor, you know? And they give it to us, but it makes me feel like I need to, you know, side-eye it a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I feel like I feel like everyone is on board with the development of these movies and they're all in it in terms of what the director may want to do. But I feel like if someone questioned a vision or the tone of the film or some kind of representation thing that those people in charge would suddenly get offended and turn it around and make it about themselves. I don't know. Like it would be an attack. Um, it's, it's, it's like when a project um, is steeped in very safe and aware condition conditions um, but they got there by using experiences that aren't really theirs, you know, experiences and representation that we want to see, but it's still not really for us. So, um, it's, it's like making the audience feel safe without, and making them and putting them in on what we feel should be right about the way we treat each other, but uh, it's still kind of glossy. You know, I think of like the frail male ego of Peter Quill, you know, someone that we laugh at and we're all, you know, it's, it's, he's, he's a fun character or whatever, but is he, is he really a character to, to emulate? Is he a hero or the teen angst of Spider-Man where everybody kept saying it was based on John Hughes, but after watching it, I feel like this movie was made for people who grew up on John Hughes, not for teens, though. You know, when you're watching Breakfast Club as a kid, when I watched Breakfast Club as a kid, I mean, I got it, you know. Um, or the way they treat Valkyrie in Ragnarok, which is, you know, she's a fine character and they do it to make sure that they are relevant and to make sure that the movie isn't so testosterone-y. Uh, but where's Sif? Why did they have to sacrifice Sif for Valkyrie? Why didn't they have both? You know, it's like they go one, they, 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 these movies just go one step. They go a little far um, into where we want them, but not too far. So they don't piss off, you know, their mainstream audience, you know, but give us, they give everybody else just enough. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, so the movies I'm talking about are Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Spider-Man Homecoming and Thor Ragnarok. Uh, we get some more actor de-aging with Ego, with um, Kurt Russell's character in Guardians of, the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. We also saw it in Ant-Man with Hank Pym and uh, in Civil War with Robert Downey Jr., so, so I thought that's kind of cool. Whenever they do all these previous year segments, I really want somebody to put them all together, which maybe somebody did on YouTube, because I want to see how that sequence plays out. Think of it almost as that comic called Marvel Saga in the 80s, where they tried to put the uh, first, I don't know, what was it, first 
10 years of the Marvel Universe into chronological order, which I thought was kind of cool. So I think that would be really interesting to see how that all develops. This movie, uh, I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I'm still not a fan of it. The second time, I think it slows down a lot in the middle. It opens up strong. We get some new things like the Sovereign and Aisha and uh, Contraxia and Howard the Duck and Starhawk and Martin X. A little bit more about the Ravagers. Ego as a celestial taser face. Um, But then the middle of the movie, does it slow? I think it really slows down once they go on Ego, once they go on Ego's planet. The whole thing where Groot is trying to find the Finn, I don't know, it just feels too, feels too yuck, yuck, yucky, you know, I don't know. Now, if you remember last episode, I had this thing where I felt like people were really latching onto this father-son thing between Peter Quill and Yondu, and I didn't get why, because I didn't feel like the first movie set that up at all. And I feel like, okay, upon the second viewing, I can see where that develops in this movie, but I still don't necessarily think it's as strong as people were making it, especially because when Ego almost had Peter Quill under his spell, uh, the thing that snapped him out of it was because that Ego, he found out Ego killed his mother, and that's the whole reason why they go to battle at the end. So... Yeah, there's a connection between Yondu and Peter. I, I think there's a real strong connection between Yondu and Rocket in this movie, more so than Peter. Uh, you know, Peter says, you killed my mom, you broke my Walkman, which is all about his mom. So there's that. Uh, I feel like young Groot is a jerk. Uh, people think he's cute. I think he's a jerk. Um, it's at the funeral where Peter Quill says, you know, that he, he realizes that Yondu was more of a dad than anybody else. So, you know, it's there, whatever. And then at the end, the uh, credit scenes, we get the original Guardians, which is really kind of cool. And then we get uh, Aisha creating Adam, which is a little switch from the comics where first there was him and then there was her. Now there's her and then there will be him. Uh, And then we get Teen Groot, which, uh, you know, I assume will play out in Infinity War. So this movie... um, you know, there was stuff between Gamora and Peter Quill. I don't know. I thought it was kind of a blah chapter. Then we get Spider-Man Homecoming. Still don't really... I think Michael Keaton is great. Uh, Tom Holland is fine. The whole Iron Man-Peter Parker relationship... They're doing it for the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a complete, you know, sidestep of the relationship that Peter Parker has to being a superhero through his uncle, not through Iron Man. So maybe there's a way to fit that in prior to Homecoming, but I don't know. We've now seen it in Civil War, and we've seen it in this movie, and I assume we'll see it in Infinity War because he gets the Iron Spider suit. So they're going to be hard-pressed to shake off this whole Peter Parker-Tony Stark relationship um, post-Infinity uh, War. Some of the timeline of this movie doesn't make sense. They talk about how this movie takes place eight years after the Battle of New York, but that would place it at 2020, so I don't understand that. Um, Happy is moving out of of Avengers Tower, 
and moving upstate, but that happened after Age of Ultron, but this movie takes place after Age of uh, after Civil War where they're already in the upstate headquarters. So, unless they're completely moving out, maybe Tony's part of Stark Industries is moving out of the tower and uh, you know, it's just sitting there, so, you know, if the Fantastic 4 need a headquarters, there you go. Um Post-Civil War Tony is back to being flippant again. So there's another idea about how, um, you know, his story, how some of their stories take place between movies. And we get Pepper, she's back, and suddenly they're engaged. But yet at the beginning of the Civil War, they were broken up. And everybody's kind of like, ah, okay, whatever. I don't, I don't get that. Uh, I didn't like the whole Karen AI inside Peter's suit. I even wrote down that I kept falling asleep during this part. Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, not a, not necessarily a fan of this movie. I did want to make mention, though, in Civil War, um, Peter talks about being Spider-Man, and I feel like it's the closest thing to Spider-Man that we get when he says, you know, when you can do things but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. And I felt, yeah, that's a very Spider-Man thing, and it also hits Tony, and I have to imagine that's something that's going to play out with Infinity War. All right, then we get to Thor Ragnarok. This movie felt like it was like three different movies all in one. Um, you know, it's Ragnarok, it's Guardians, it's Doctor Who, it's Planet Hulk, it's Flash Gordon. I was not a fan of this movie at all. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I feel like... All right, so when Edgar Wright wanted to make Iron Man, it was too early in the development of the Marvel Cinematic Universe for them to allow a director of such you know, vision that Edgar Wright has to really do what he wanted to do for Iron Man. But they kept saying the director of this movie, it was all about his vision and what he wanted it wanted it to be and that's why Ragnarok is funny and quirky and offbeat and you got Jeff Goldblum as the grandmaster and you have you know the ridiculous dialogue of the Hulk which I did not care for um so I'm like oh okay so he gets to put his directing style onto this movie um because it's phase 3 but when I was watching a lot of the outtake scenes and the deleted scenes and some of the the behind the stuff the scenes um, videos comp- compilations that they had, and he was the director was really jokey, and now all the other people were like, "Oh, it's so fun to work with him because he's so zany and crazy and wild." And I'm like, "Wait a minute, was he making a movie or was he making a movie about himself making a movie? I mean, he put himself in it, right? He plays Korg. I don't." I don't know, something kind of really rubbed me the wrong way um, about this movie and about the way the director, you know, all those behind, I don't know, it just felt like (sighs) quirky just to be quirky, felt a little bit maybe like a vanity project, and yet it still hits a lot of the beats that we've seen before. This movie's not, it's a different Thor movie, I'll give you that, but it's echoing a lot of what Guardians did, so... Uh, and I felt that real early in the movie, not only in, in the tone of it, but the color, the way it was filmed. I wasn't a fan of this movie. Um, a lot of stuff happens very quickly just to, again, put the chess pieces where they need to be. You know, the Warriors 3 are killed. 
Uh, Mjolnir is destroyed because we got to get the power into Thor. Um, we have Hulk's um, involvement in this movie to explain where he went after Age of Ultron. But again, is this a Hulk that we've seen in the comics? No, and I guess it doesn't have to be, but there was something about it that I was like, eh, I don't like this Hulk. We find out that everything that Thor knew about his heritage is a lie, which is an echo to Loki finding out his heritage in the first Thor movie. So it kind of brings them on common ground for the first time. And it gives them a different relationship for this movie, right? So they're not adversaries like Thor 1. And um, the next time we see him, he's a different Loki, you know, with... Uh, with um, uh, dark world and now he's on they're on different footing again so it makes me feel like they've maybe come full circle which kind of feels like uh oh Loki better watch out for infinity war um this is the thunderstrike version of thor i feel with the, with the short hair and the way his costume looks and he has that mace thing uh i feel like oh we've gone thunderstrike now um Thor has his own black sidekick in this movie with Heimdall. You know, there it is again, that whole Marvel Universe doing that whole trope. I wasn't a fan of the third act fight uh, on the Rainbow Bridge. You know, everybody always says that superhero movies, that third act fight, oh, they don't mean anything. And I disagree with that. Like, I feel like in most superhero movies, sometimes they really do mean something. In this one, because they kick in that... Uh, um, song from um led zeppelin i think right uh but it's just random acts it's just random violence there's there's no stakes here there's no stakes here we know what's going to happen you know there's no stakes because they unleash surter to destroy asgard because that's what they want him to do so is surter around did he blow up with asgard you know like i feel like i don't know this was there was a lot of style to this movie and not a lot of substance it really was about putting Thor where he needs to be so that we can lead that into Infinity War. So uh, that's about all I want to say about that movie. All right, then we get Black Panther. First time I've seen Black Panther. And yes, it is good. It does follow the Marvel formula. You know, what, what happens at the end? He fights a counterpart to himself, another person in the Black, another Black Panther costume. It's just like Iron Man. Um, so apparently this movie takes place a week after Civil War or not short, shortly thereafter. Um, we get a line here, just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. A whole bunch of Black Panther stuff with the Vibranium meteorite, uh, Shuri, Killmonger, Manape, all the different tribes. Uh, Black Panther says, or someone says to Black Panther, it's hard for a good man to be king. And he might have said that himself. That felt like a nice little callback to Thor, where Thor was saying, look, I can either be a good, a great king or a good man, or a good man or a great king, but you can't be both. So that was kind of interesting. And I found myself just really watching this movie. You know, there's a lot that the movie says, and uh, I appreciated that um, the themes for this movie weren't easy to deal with. They're, they're not easy to choose sides. I feel like Killmonger, you know, um, Michael B. Jordan was really good. Uh, sometimes it felt a little uh, expedient, um, a little too different. 
um, or that he could invade Wakanda like that that quickly, that he could, you know, just come to Wakanda. I don't know. It just all felt, I don't know. Part of me feels like this would have been a better Black Panther 2 than a Black Panther 1. Like, this movie felt like it was Black Panther Winter Soldier <laughs> and not Black Panther First Avenger, right? It felt like it was Chapter 2 of a trilogy, not Chapter 1. But the biggest takeaway that I uh, about this movie is who, who it was made for. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like. Uh, you know, I have friends who saw it and said that they just really got into it. It was a movie for them that spoke to them. I could see some of the humor, some of the way the characters interacted that I said, oh, okay, see, now that's a cultural thing. And that's great because when you have the people in the movie and you have people who are making this movie and they are all of the same people, it means something. And that's why, I feel like that's why this movie took off and rightfully so because it was made for them. And it, you know, it just, I think we take it for granted when we say, oh, these movies are made for the masses. Well, not when three of your actors are in white guys named Chris. It's not made for the masses, you know? And I feel like this movie really spoke to people of, of all different, you know, backgrounds. And, um, uh, and you know, that, that part of it, I can't fault. And there's a reason why it means something. And there's a reason why it stood out. And it's good. It's good. It is a Marvel movie. It definitely is a Marvel movie. It has the same Marvel structure. But I'm get, glad that Ryan Cogler got to do uh, a little bit more with it. And we got to introduce ourselves to a whole new side of the Marvel Universe that, you know, is going to last. It's not like the Inhumans where um, nobody wants, <laughs> nobody cares about the Inhumans. But this part of the Marvel Universe is strong and well-developed and they were smart to do, uh, to put the, the people in place to make this movie. So that is definitely something I walked away from. All right, so obviously, you know, I've seen some trailers for Infinity War where there's going to be a big battle scene in Wakanda. I hope that that's not the only battle scene. Um, a lot of takeaways in Phase 3, some of them more about putting the, the chess pieces where they need to fall for Infinity War and realizing that certain characters have been off the grid, like Captain America, like Black Widow, like Hawkeye, anybody that was rescued from the raft, they're gone, so... Sometimes we've seen those characters pop in here and there, and in this movie, no, it's really just been Tony and Thor and, you know, a few others. So, um, yeah, that's it. That's it. I don't think this this phase I took away as much as I did with the other two phases. Um, again, because I felt like this phase was going in different directions and expanding and, you know, Infinity War will bring us all back together, so... Hopefully you enjoyed this little trilogy of episodes if you haven't seen Infinity War yet. Um, thank you for letting indulging me in doing that. It was kind of taxing to watch all these movies back to back to back, but I did it. Yay. And uh, you know, now we can do now we can do some other stuff. So all right, this has been the Daily Rios episode 424. You know where to get a hold of me, Peter at thedailyreels.com, or follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. And uh, hopefully you know, send me a message or leave a comment on the website, what you thought of this uh, trilogy of episodes and what you thought of Infinity War. And we'll talk soon. Okay, bye.